following its success in setting up an anti-communist labor federation in Europe, the AFL and eventually the merged CIO leadership turned their attention to Latin America, which they believed posed the biggest potential threat to the expansion of U.S. interests. If communism, horrible, destructive communism, was allowed to spread in Latin America. And so they developed a similar anti-communist labor federation, the Inter-American Regional Workers Organization, or in its uh, Spanish acronym, ORIT, O-R-I-T. This organization was essentially the Latin American version of the ICFTU, set up specifically to split off non-communist workers from communist workers. This would lead to arguably the most destructive and violent chapter in the collaboration between the AFL and the CIA, which would be done under the guises of a new organization called the American Institute of Free Labor Development. The CIA's trade union operations are affected through a vast bureaucracy of people. These are the officers of the international trade unions and of the national unions, especially in the United States, through which the CIA is able to infiltrate and um, manipulate the international unions. Um, of course, Mr. Meany is, uh, has been in the past one of the principal, if not the principal, uh, U.S. trade unionist through which these operations are affected. In 1946, Italian ex-socialist Serafino Romualdi, who CIA defector Philip Agee referred to as, quote, the principal CIA agent for labor operations in Latin America, end quote, became the AFL's chief, rep chief representative in Latin America and the Caribbean. Functioning similarly to Irving Brown's role in Europe, his mission, similar to how Brown had disrupted communist-led unions in Italy and France, was to split or at least weaken the left-led Confederación de Trabajadores de América, a uh, labor confederation which had been founded by Mexican labor leader Vincente Lombardo Toledano in 1938 to unite uh, the various left-aligned unions in Latin America gaining support from obviously both the State Department's labor attaché system, but also Latin America's social democratic parties. Romualdi was able to convince several, many organizations to split from the CTAL, bringing those unions together in 1948 under a new group, the CIT, which would eventually be uh, merged into ORIT when it was formed three years later in 1951. Or it would go on to fight against left-wing, uh, and even Catholic trade union groups across the hemisphere, essentially functioning as a break on the labor movement, preventing it from coalescing, preventing it from unifying, and weakening both the individual unions as well as the left movement within the various countries of Latin America. Following the success of ORIT in splitting the unions, as well as the success of the ICFTU, and other actions by the AFL against communist groups, the American Institute for Free Labor Development was created. It was proposed by CWA President Joseph Byrne, who had once held a seat on the AFL-CIO's Executive Council. In 1959, Byrne brought 16 ORIT union officials from Latin America to Virginia for a training course on how to be an effective company unionist. Based on this, the success of this program in bringing Latin American trade union officials to the United States to be schooled, 
in the trade craft of disrupting left-wing groups, of supporting counter-revolutionary actions, of working with right-wing parties, all of the various uh, methods, including um, spycraft, that the AFL-CIO working with the CIA had been using to disrupt the labor movement in Europe and to systematize that into an educational program via which uh, anti-communist labor leaders in uh, Latin America could be brought to the U.S., trained, and then sent back. Trainees who are considered to have exceptional prote- uh, potential would be brought to a facility at Front Royal, Virginia for a three-month residential course, essentially functioning like a School of the Americas for trade unionists. If folks are not aware, uh, the School of the Americas is a very infamous training academy that the United States set up for military personnel in Latin America to combat guerrilla movements uh, largely during the 60s and 70s, but um, uh, continuing to today. That's its express purpose. What it has functioned as, however, is as the training grounds for death squads. Uh, if you have heard about death squads in any Latin American company uh, country, odds are they were trained at the School of the Americas. And the AIFLD essentially set out to set up a similar training program for unionists. Bringing the workers in, training them for three months, and then sending them back to their home countries with a nine-month stipend to fund their efforts at disrupting leftist groups in their home countries. The AIFLD was primarily funded through uh, the U.S. Aid Program, uh, which, again, is yet another American program with a much nicer-sounding name than it actually is. Folks who are aware of the National Endowment for Democracy, which we will be talking about later, uh, and how that funnels money from the CIA to other groups— uh, USAID works the same way. It is primarily a group for funneling money to organizations that the U.S. wishes to fund without necessarily applying, you know, the imprint of CIA backing to them. And the funds acquired from USAID by the AFLD were used to vastly expand the program that they had initiated with ORIT. They included signing contracts to build affordable worker housing as a way to split workers off from or from uh, communist-affiliated unions. Although I, they did mention in much of the research that I was doing that these were often vast overpromises, and that once the desired effect had been achieved of, of splitting these groups, uh, the actual delivering on these promises would be far, far uh, below what had been promised. Just in numbers, the AIFLD uh, trained at least 250,000 workers from Latin America and the Caribbean in how to disrupt uh, organizing. Over 1,600 of these trainees were specifically trained in special programs in the United States and just specifically for one country in Chile. By 1972, there had been over 9,000 trainees from the AIFLD's program, 80 of whom had received special training inside the U.S. J. Peter Grace, who was a chairman of the board of the AIFLD and also chairman of the board of the W.R. Grace Corporation, one of the 95 transnational companies that backed the AIFLD, stated that the AIFLD, quote, urges cooperation between labor and management and an end to class struggle. And, quote, teaches workers to increase their company's business. 
He said that the goal of the AIFLD is to, quote, prevent communist infiltration and where it exists, get rid of it, end quote. Now, again, this is the thing. You will constantly hear, oh, they weren't trying to hurt the labor movement. They were just fighting communism. But then when you go and see the ideologues, the people in charge of this stuff, they will tell you. They will tell you directly what they are doing. As he said, collaboration between labor and management and an end to class struggle, which, as we all know, is impossible and is the sort of thing only advocated by fascists. <laughs> it's explicitly the goal of, you know, fascist co-opted trade unions to end the class struggle and to force workers to put, you know, their organizing efforts into boosting their bosses rather than their fellow workers. A later chair of the AIFLD, William Doherty, explained its mission to members of Congress. Quote, our collaboration with business takes the form of trying to make the investment climate more attractive and inviting, end quote. Eventually, disagreements over the foreign policy conducted under the guise of the AIFLD would lead to disruptions within the AFL, including leading the, a the UAW to disaffiliate from the Federation in 1968 over disagreements over foreign policy. The UAW would not return to the AFL-CIO until 1981. And to understand why one of the largest, and especially in the 60s, you know, most active and, and radical, potentially radical, obviously, we talked about this in uh, Detroit, I do mind dying. Many radical rank and file workers, not always the most radical leadership, but to understand why a union of that sort of a size in the United States would split with the AFL-CIO over foreign policy, we have to get into what the AIFLD did beyond just, you know, sending money to anti-communist groups, which is certainly bad enough on its own, but not necessarily the sort of thing that's going to get a group like the UAW to split from the AFL. So starting in 1954, in Guatemala, one of the United States' first major coups, specifically, as, as I'm sure everyone's aware, in support of the United Fruit Company. Um, after the 1954 coup and following crackdown on labor by uh, General Armas, the, the coup leader, Serafina Romualdi, who we mentioned before, was the AFL and the CIA's primary man in Latin America, stated that, quote, Workers were brought back to conditions of servitude, if not actual slavery, end quote. And after Armas took power, the AFL-CIO and ORIT members traveled to Guatemala to reorganize the labor movement along anti-communist lines. But even after all that reorganization, there was still a huge violent crackdown by the coup government against any sort of work stoppage by even the most anti-communist of unions. And after the coup, George Meany put out a statement saying that, quote, the AFL rejoices over the downfall of the communist-controlled regime in Guatemala, 